Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I am Jack Llewellyn. I'm happy as hell to be here with you for our first episode of 2024. We took a couple of weeks off around the holidays, uh, spent some time with friends and family, did a little much-needed R&R, and also did some planning on where we're going to go with this podcast uh, in 2024, and we'll talk more about that a little bit later. If you remember back, the last episode in 2023 was the first of two parts talking about Juan Ramon Monteros, the Honduran drug lord. And you remember we talked a little bit about his upbringing, how he got into the drug trafficking business. We discussed a bit of his alleged connections um, and being the conduit between the cartels in Colombia and Felix Gallardo. Uh, we talked about his connections to the elite and the politicians and the military in Honduras. We also talked about his potential connections to the CIA and the Contra efforts through a business called Setco. And we talked about his proclivity for violence, and we told the infamous story about the Ferrari couple uh, who were kidnapped and tortured uh, after a business dispute. And then we talked about his downfall, his uh, extradition from, or his rendition, I should say, from Honduras to the Dominican Republic and then to the United States. And uh, his eventually being tried in connection with the Camarena case, as well as some of the drug trafficking charges that had already been against him. So today, what we want to do is a couple of things. One, I want to talk about his role in the Camarena case. And we're not going to talk about this in tremendous detail, but I want to clarify some points. And... Uh, when we do that, we're going to uh, talk about a few things, and then I'm also going to read from a page or two in Desperados. Again, that's Elaine Shannon's book. She talks about one particular event in a better way than I could possibly summarize. So I think that that's going to be important. Then we're going to talk a little bit about the role that Matabiasteros had or may have had in connection with the the group of traffickers in Guadalajara that's been referred to as the Guadalajara cartel. We'll talk just a little bit more about Setco, and then we'll f- conclude this by discussing his legacy. And I think there's some interesting observations that can be made. And then I should say, actually, the the last part I'm going to talk a little bit about a conversation that I had with Mr. Mata uh, probably two years, maybe even a little bit longer than that ago. So we'll discuss that as well. All right. What role did Mata Ballesteros have or was he alleged to have in the Camarena case? If you remember from when we discussed those alleged conspiracy meetings. Remember, there's like 12 or 13 alleged conspiracy meetings if you look at the testimony of Cervantes and then uh, 
Placentia Aguilar, mostly from the first trial, and then the second trial, uh, Godoy and Lopez Romero. We've got these alleged conspiracy meetings. Cervantes in Zuno 1 testified that there was a wedding celebration in October of 1984 at a home called La Quinta. And it was a wedding celebration for Javier Barba Hernandez's brother, Jorge Barba Hernandez. And the allegation was that at this uh, wedding celebration, there were discussions amongst some of the traffickers and politicians that were in attendance with respect to the trouble they were having with an unidentified FBI or FBI DEA agent. Cervantes testified that during this meeting, he observed Mata Ballesteros talking with Miguel Aldana Ibarra, who was the commandante of the MFJP. Important to note, no one else, no other witness, no other documents showed or alleged that Mata Ballesteros was at any of these other conspiracy meetings. So the only one that he's alleged to have been at was the testimony of Cervantes about this wedding celebration at La Quinta in October of 1984. Remember, of course, that Cervantes testified at Zuno 1, but not at Zuno 2. Why? Because in the intervening period, one, Cervantes' credibility was called into question. Two, he went public and recanted and then rec- recanted his recantation and made all kinds of claims. Point being, he never testified in the second trial because his credibility had been so badly shaken. Keep that in mind as you weigh the evidence or when you think about Matabiasteros' purported role in uh, these conspiracy meetings and particularly the La Quinta meeting. Also, keeping back in your mind, because we're going to talk about it in just a second, but again, Miguel Aldana Ibarra, that's who Cervantes said Matabiasteros was talking to. All right, what about Lope de Vega? The evidence was presented that when the FBI collected hair and fiber and other evidence from Lope de Vega, amongst the hair fibers found was a hair that was analyzed by Agent Malone that he said matched the hair of Matabiasteros. Remember, too, we, we had a whole episode talking about Agent Malone and the fact that his testimony in a number of cases was thrown out as being uh, improper, 
lack of foundation, lack of, of scientific basis, etc. Okay, so as a result of that, the throwing out of the evidence, one of the cases that was dismissed was the case against Mata Ballesteros with respect to the Cambrena case. Now, remember, also, keep in mind, he was only ever charged with conspiracy to kidnap, not the murder. So those charges were dismissed and then later dropped. The prosecution elected not to retry him on those charges without the hair evidence. However, Matabayasteros remains in prison because he was serving two life sentences for those uh, drug trafficking charges, the one in Arizona and the one in California that we discussed the last time. Okay. Perhaps the most interesting element of Marbaesteros's connection to the Camarena case is his appearance in Mexico City immediately after the Camarena abduction. Okay. And I want to read again from Desperados because um, it, it just, like I say, it might as well go right to the source. So, Ms. Shannon starts off, and I'm at, at page 240 of Desperados, and I know there's a couple of editions. So, the one I'm looking at at the moment says that. Um, so, she says, and on the night of Saturday, February 16, Miguel Ibarra personally intervened to allow another member of the Guadalajara cartel to leave Mexico. Two days before, in a house in the exclusive Colonia de Valle section of Mexico City, DE agents had located Juan Matabayesteros, the Honduran who was Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo's cocaine connection. Mata was traced with the help of a telephone intercept on which Mata could be heard complaining to an associate that he did not know what the fuss was all about. I paid my taxes, he whined. According to an internal DEA report, DEA agent Walter White, Ed Heath's deputy at the U.S. Embassy, passed the address directly to MFJP Director Ibarra. Nothing happened. On Saturday, the agents went to Gavin, who called Attorney General Sergio Garcia Ramirez. The Attorney General told Gavin he would have the apartment raided immediately. Getting it done was not so easy. According to Mullen, Garcia Ramirez could not find Ibarra. Finally, on Saturday evening, he reached Ibarra's deputy who ordered a raiding party. Just before the Federales were to move in, Ibarra materialized and stalled the raid. Moments later, DE agents stalking out the apartment saw four people leave the house, get into a car, and speed away. The Federales went into the apartment on Sunday morning. They found a woman who said, yes, Juan Mata had been there. He had left the night before. 
Gavin told a reporter for Newsweek magazine that he understood Ibarra had not allowed the Federales to enter the apartment because he thought Mata was being protected by DFS officers and feared an embarrassing shootout between the two federal agencies. He said Ibarra had decided it would be better to arrest Mata at the airport. So, Mata shows up in Mexico City shortly after the Camarena abduction and is saved by Miguel Ibarra, who, again, coincidentally, is the person that Cervantes said he was talking to at the La Quinta wedding celebration. And this makes a critical point. We've talked about this a couple of times before. Just because Cervantes' testimony was deemed uh, you know, unreliable or not sufficiently reliable that he could be a witness for the government in the second trial, just because we know he's changed his version of events at different times doesn't mean that every single thing he says is, is false, right? It just means we have to have a great deal of skepticism every time we look at, the, at what he says. The same thing goes, you know, maybe to a lesser extent, but the same thing goes with uh, Lopez Romero or Godoy or lots of people who have s- seen things, been involved in certain events. So they're going to have some factual things to say, but it doesn't mean you can extrapolate and say that everything they say is correct or trust everything. But I do find it, again, it's not a coincidence. It's highly unlikely to be a coincidence that Cervantes testifies about the conversation with Miguel Ibarra and that Ibarra is the one who essentially let Mata flee from Mexico City after the Camarena abduction. Okay. Also want to talk about... uh, Miguel or Matabiasteros's role in the that organization defined however you want that some have referred to as the Guadalajara cartel. And over the break, I got a couple of questions about this. You know, why am I so fixated on whether it was a cartel or or wasn't a cartel and who who were the founders and who weren't the founders? You know, what difference does it make 40 years after the fact? And the reason I'm obsessed with it is twofold. One is I want to be academically honest, right? Let's let's call a duck a duck. And if it's not a duck, don't call it a duck, right? If it's not a cartel, let's not call it a cartel. Let's give it another term. Let's define it a different way. But... And, and I'm, we're going to point to this again in just a second here. But if you have a cartel as opposed to an organization, you know, or a group of people, there are elements of being in a cartel, having an organization, having some kind of set of practices that indicate or give good indications of how people act with respect to one another. That helps us determine how events might have proceeded or progressed with respect to the Camarena abduction, 
with respect to the eventual murder of Agent Camarena, to the disposal of his body, and the aftermath. So it's not just this pure academic and insignificant issue as to was it a cartel, who were the founders, who was at the, you know, if there was a, a an org chart, so to speak, who would have been at the top? Those things are important to know and to understand. That's why I fixate on this issue so much. Now, I want to use um, another reference point here. Great reporter, really good reporter uh, in Mexico City. He's written a number of books on... Uh, cartels and, and things um, is my friend Yoan Griel, and uh, he has some, um, you know, some some great um, insights and thoughts about Matabayasteros and his role. And I'd like to read a little bit of what he says, and this is from his book El Narco. And I'm looking at page 63, and here's what he has to say. Back in Colombia, the kingpins felt the task force bite. Seizures meant losses of hundreds of millions of dollars. The Medellin cartel needed to rethink its strategy. So it turned to Mata for a fix. Mata had first used the Mexican trampoline to bounce drugs into the United States in the early 1970s, when he sold cocaine to Cuban-American Alberto Cecilia Falcone. Since Falcone's imprisonment, Mata had cultivated relations with the rising stars among Sinaloan gangsters. These Mexicans could provide a great solution for the cocaine kings. Why did they need to risk everything through Florida when they could spread it over another 2,000 miles of land border? The Mexicans already had the smuggling routes, so for Mata and the Colombians, it was just a question of handing them the cocaine and picking it up north of the river. DEA Andean Regional Director Jay Bourbon describes the deal. The first, the first stage of negotiations was, we're the Colombians, we own the product, we own distribution of cocaine in the United States. Mexicans have got your weed and your black tar heroin. Cocaine distribution from the sunny shores of Los Angeles to the mean streets of Baltimore, that is our territory. That is what we do. What we are going to do for you is we want to negotiate with you. We are going to provide you cocaine, and you are going to deliver it from somewhere in Mexico to somewhere in the United States. And you are going to turn it back over to us, to our cartel emissaries. That is the way it started out. The historical importance of this deal cannot be overstated. Once billions of dollars of cocaine poured into Mexico, its drug trafficking would become bigger and bloodier than anyone had imagined. The Mexicans started off as paid couriers, but after they got a sniff, they would take the whole pie. And then... Um, Yohan talks about some of the the anti um, heroin efforts. There was something called um, Operation Condor, 
and then talks about the marijuana fields. And he says, to maximize profits, they did what any good businessman would do. Went for economy of scale. Instead of buying marijuana from small family farms, they built enormous plantations. The DA got wind of one such operation out of the Chihuahua desert and pressured the Mexican army to take it down. The bus set a worldwide record for marijuana farms that hasn't been beaten since. In total, there were more than 5,000 tons of psychedelic weed. Thousands of campesinos had worked on the plantation for wages of $6 a day. When the army stormed in, the bosses had all disappeared, but the campesinos were still wandering the desert without food or water. Such colossal quantities of marijuana met, meant big bucks, but cocaine profits were even bigger. Court documents allege that Mata and his partner, Felix Gardo, were personally raking in $5 million every single week pumping cocaine through the Mexican pipeline. After Mexican mobsters delivered the blow into the United States, documents say, Mata was moving it through a network of distributors in Arizona, California, and New York. The capo continued to use Anglo-Americans to get the cocaine out to disco dancing customers. Running the Arizona ring was John Drummond, who eventually turned into a protective witness to rat out the kingpin. Then this is also important. It is likely Mata, Felix Gallardos, and others never called themselves a cartel or gave their operations any particular name. In a later written prison diary, Felix Gallardo wrote, in 1989, the cartels didn't exist. There started to be talk about cartels from authorities assigned to combat them. But whatever the gangsters called themselves, the D agents in Mexico started to call the, gang- the Federation of Gangsters the Guadalajara cartel and dispatches to Washington from 1984. So there's, there's that with respect to um, Mata's role and uh, you know, kind of that, that idea of the cartel. And again, uh, you know, Yon Grillo, El Narco, really good book. Um, well-researched, think about, you know, that if you like Desperados, you'll like his work as well. All right, so that's his role with the Guadalajara cartel, the Guadalajara traffickers, however you want to refer to them. Setco is an interesting issue. And there's probably another time when we can discuss um, Setco even more. But Setco was a airline agency or an airline uh, company out of Honduras that clearly had connections to the CIA and its efforts to fund the Contras. We know that, and remember, we talked about this a little bit uh, in part one, but we know the connection in part because in the hearings following you know the blow up of the Iran Contra affair including the the Kerry hearings and the Kerry report there was evidence that 
there were payments of almost $187,000 from the State Department to SETCO during the period from January to August of 1986. So that was right in the wheelhouse. Let me also tell you again what... um, what Yohan has to say about this. So we're back um, to El Narco and page 69. And as a result of some of the the publicity that had gone on regarding the Iran-Contra affair and other things, uh, he says, the CIA was forced to hold its own internal investigation, the findings of which were released in 1998. So we have government-stated facts to guide our history. Both reports confirm that cocaine dealers indeed funneled money to Contras paid by the CIA. And a certain name flashes up on both reports, Juan Ramon Matabayasteros. To bring guns to its Contra army, the CIA hired the Honduran airline Setco, established allegedly by none other than Mata himself. The Senate report states the payments made by the State Department between January and, 19, and August 1986 were as follows. Setco for air transport services, $186,924.25. Then a few pages later, the report says U.S. law enforcement records indicate that Setco was established by Honduran cocaine trafficker Juan Matabayasteros. Perhaps the CIA agents never knew they were working with drug traffickers. The agency's internal report says there is no conclusive proof that they did, thus clearing them of knowing. However, it does state, in long-winded rambling terms, CIA knowledge of allegations or information indicating that organizations or individuals had been involved in drug trafficking did not deter their use by the CIA. In other cases, CIA did not act to verify drug trafficking allegations or information when it had the opportunity to do so. In other words, see no evil, hear no evil. Now that makes it sound like a pretty open and shut case with respect to Setco. Mata and the CIA. And it's not quite that easy. There's also some reports from the Department of Justice and some requests for information that went from the Department of Justice to the CIA. Two um two um, paragraphs from a an agency, a CIA internal memorandum to talk about uh, these inquiries from DOJ. One of them says, no information has been found to indicate the CIA received allegations that any SEDCO aircraft were involved in drug trafficking during the Contra era. In late 1992, however, a Defense Department counter-narcotics cable indicated that Setco was being used in the Honduran Bay Islands by drug traffickers 
who concealed narcotics under dried fish in transport through Honduras. Okay, that's 1992. The cable did not indicate whether Setco was aware of the transshipment operation. Then it also says, on April 28, 1989, the Department of Justice requested that the agency provide information regarding Mata and six co-defendants for use in prosecution. DOJ also requested information concerning Setco, described as a Honduran corporation set up by Juan Mata Ballesteros. The May 2 CIA memorandum to DOJ containing the results of agency traces on Mata, his co-defendants, and Setco stated that following, quote, an extensive search of the files and indices of the Directorate of Operations, there are no records of a Setco air. That's air, A-R-R, not air. So you get a lot of infor- different information um, with respect to what Setco's role was. Was it simply carrying arms and supplies for the Contra rebels? Was it also engaged in drug trafficking operations? To what extent was Matabiasteros actually involved with Setco? Again, not quite as easy and as simple as might be portrayed. Okay. Let's talk about Mata's legacy for a second. And uh, then we'll talk about my conversations with Mata. Um, we talked at the in part one that at one time, Mata Ballesteros was by far the largest private employer in the country of Honduras. He employed thousands, thousands of people, and he invested in coffee, tobacco, spice, um, cattle, dairy operations. He had um, numerous agricultural um, firms, companies, farms. Uh, He also had a lot of construction firms, particularly in the capital city. That where you know, he was actively involved in the uh, the modernization and the construction of the capital city in Honduras. Remember, um, you know the idea was uh, as as I read just a minute ago, there were um, there there was testimony and reports in a court of appeals opinion that said Mata and Felix Garda were pur- pulling in more than $5 million per week from their activity. Uh, DE agents reported uh, that in the early 1980s, Mata had paid $50 million to Bolivian and other Latin American officials to protect his narcotics operations from law enforcement. And so, you know, when you look at the businesses that he had, the uh, 
you know, the depth and the breadth of them with respect to a great deal of the population of Honduras, there is a sense of nobility to that, especially within the Honduran culture, right? We compared him the first time a little bit with Pablo Escobar, Don Pablo the Good, at least until, you know, he he bombed an airliner. So there was this affinity for um, Mata, the money that he put back into the economy in Honduras, the people that were employed. The flip side, of course, is to say that's great, but what it really was was a money laundering operation, right? He was making so much money he had to do something with it. So you get that yin and yang of of Mata as you do with some other uh, criminals, some other traffickers. There was a um, a really, really good report put out by um, oh, hold on, who was it? Give me one. Oh, Insight, Insight Org has a really nice article on um, Matabiasteros. It's back from uh, 2016. But one of the things it says that I, I find very interesting, this is a quote, it's tempting to imagine what would have happened to Matabiasteros had he taken a slightly different path. His economic, political, and social base had positioned him well to transition into a more established elite. One of the other things that I find fascinating about Matabiasteros is the breadth of his connections. And picture, if you can, a a chart that starts with Matabiasteros at the center and the um, tremendous connections that go to and from Matabiasteros. So we know, for example, that the United States government paid Mata money Right, we talked about that a second ago, and in exchange, Matabiasteros sent supplies or provided supplies to the Contras. We also know that he had protection from the Mexican government. Right. We also know that he had a relationship primarily through the transportations of drugs with the Guadalajara cartel, who were also receiving protection from elements of the Mexican government in exchange for money. We also know that that drug connection with the Guadalajara cartel, again, just using that name to make it easier, he had that exact same connection with the Medellin cartel, and he was the conduit that provided for the relationship, the exchange of drugs and money between the Guadalajara cartel and the Medellin cartel. And then we know that he's also received protection from the military in Honduras. He's received protection from the Honduran political elite system. And in exchange, he's provided money to the Honduran elites, the Honduras military. So if you you know if you have a a spoke in a wheel type of, of picture, you've got Juan Mata Ballesteros 
as you know, that hub. And around him, you have the spokes of the Mexican government, the Guadalajara cartel, the Medellin cartel, the Contras, the United States government, the Honduran military, the Honduran political elites. That is a pretty amazing connection and maybe the broadest connection that any particular or single trafficker has had in Mexico or in South America. And that makes him, in my mind, a very interesting person to understand and to evaluate, to think about his power and how these connections really played out with one or another and the degree to which one element, one of those spokes knew about the others. Okay. Last thing. A couple years ago, I was able to have a conversation uh, with the, the help of a friend who was translating with Mata Ballesteros. Mata Ballesteros is currently incarcerated at a federal penitentiary in Springfield, Missouri. It is a uh, facility that has particular medical facilities, which is part of the reason he was there. Um, I was going to go visit him, but this was during COVID and they were shut down and they were shut down, frankly, for a lot longer than a lot of the country. And so having that ability to have the face to face didn't happen. I told the story the first in part one. I just mentioned again, you know, I was a 22 year old. Is that right? No, he's a little bit older than that. 25, 26 year old. And, um, you know, getting ready for my first legal job in California. And I sat down next to Mata Ballesteros during the Zuno one trial and it left a lasting impression on me. And I was able to uh, make some connections and he was, was able to talk to Mata, who was extremely friendly, um, candid about some things, and amazingly not candid about some other things. And one of the things that I've learned, other people have learned, um, I've heard investigators, reporters, journalists talk about this, is a lot of, particularly the South American, the Mexican uh, traffickers, they will take some of their secrets to the grave and, and just will not talk about them. The one thing that I think is, is fascinating is Mata was very adamant and very animated that he was not the owner of and never had been the owner of Setco that it had been established by a senator in the uh, Honduran Congress who had used his name and that once he was out and had a chance to prove himself, he could establish that he never had anything to do with Setco. 
And at this time, and I imagine that the same is true now, Mata was hoping for kind of a um, a release based upon his age and his health with the the proviso, of course, that he'd be, be returned to Honduras. And he was looking forward to being able to establish, as he put it, you know, the injustice that was done to him by people that he trusted in Honduras. I asked him about Felix Gallardo. Um, and, you know, I want to be careful a little bit because I don't want to give away, um, you know, make it. Uh, there, there are certain things that were said that probably should should remain between he and I, at least at this point. Um, but interestingly enough, he said he never met Carl Quintero, had no idea, you know, anything really about him. The one other thing that I'll note that I thought was interesting is he said that he had never worked with the CIA or never been involved with the CIA. And having anticipated that, I tried to ask the question in four or five or six different ways. And, you know, said, did you ever take money from the CIA? No. Did you ever take money from the United States government? No. Did you ever work, take money from anyone working for the CIA? No. Anyone working for the American government? No. Again, um, very hard to to judge credibility um, with a language barrier and over a telephone. But that's what he said. All right. That, my friends, is episode number one for 2024. Here's what's coming up. Next week, we're going to have kind of a... Another breakdown of current events. I think there's some been some interesting developments, some of which were mentioned in my newsletter today that we may talk about. The following week, we have an interview that's been recorded with a former FBI agent who's going to talk about MS-13 and its connection to cartels in Mexico. We also have a couple of episodes coming up where we're going to talk to a professor who has done some research on the Tamarena case, and I may have some information with respect to the infamous uh, Rancho Veracruz. And then also significantly, I will be going to Guadalajara in uh, a few days and going to have some, some good information um, on Things that I do there, we'll have a couple of episodes about that. So lots coming up. Thank you for rejoining after the holiday break. As always, if you have comments, questions, gripes, moans, uh, suggestions on topics, suggestions on interviewers or interviewees, we'd love to hear from you. And that, everyone, is Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena for this week. We will talk to you next week. Take care.